giving birth is one of the most significant events of your life. Sadly, the joy that you should feel can often be replaced with anxiety and helplessness instead. Do you feel like you have little control over this process? Do you want to learn about all of your birthing options? Do you understand the reasons behind policies and protocols that stand in the way of your preferences? As a labor and delivery nurse, I'm revealing insider information to educate you, reassure you, and decrease your fear. In this podcast, you'll hear empowering birth stories and experts weigh in on a range of topics. Being an observant Jewish mom, I take a special interest in the unique implications of this lifestyle. However, I speak to anyone wishing to navigate their journey with more joy and confidence. I'm your host, Hani Fingerer, and you're listening to the Happy Birthway Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Happy Birthway Podcast. Today, I have with me a very special guest, Dr. Javi Karkowski. Dr. Karkowski completed medical school at Mount Sinai, her residency at Harvard University Hospitals, followed by a fellowship in maternal fetal medicine. She now works as a high-risk obstetric specialist in New York City. Javi also lived in Tel Aviv with her family for several years and worked at an ultra-Orthodox hospital in northern Israel, experiences she loves to talk about. Javi has written for The Atlantic, Slate, The Washington Post, and other publications, High Risk, Stories of Pregnancy, Birth, and the Unexpected, Liverite Norton 2020, is her first book and available everywhere that books are sold. Javi lives in New York City with her wonderful partner, Josh, and their four stir-crazy kids. She can be reached via her website, com. Welcome, Dr. Javi. I'm so grateful to you for taking time out from such a busy schedule. As a nurse, I work closely with OBGYNs and high-risk OBGYNs, and I see their insane, intense schedule. So I know how precious this time is to you. I'm really excited to be here. I wanted to firstly talk about your book. I read your book, and it was so incredible. It's just so inspiring to see someone who has extraordinary experience, yet at the same time, you stay so human. You really take into account the human experiences of reproduction from preconception until, you know, postpartum and beyond. I think that we who work in healthcare sometimes just get not not sidetracked, we kind of had that tunnel vision of just looking at the medical component and not the actual human experience and knowing what we do through research, through best practice guidelines. We sometimes start to maybe judge a little bit and say if I have a patient that had her fourth C-section and it was, she bled a lot and almost had a hysterectomy. And then people will just say, the doctors, the nurses will just say, oh my God, she better not get pregnant again. That's crazy. But we don't take into account her background, her experiences, her dreams, her hopes, her understanding. And it's just so easy to judge. And I think that your book really combines the medical aspect together with the human experience and perception just extraordinarily. I've never read anything like it. Well, thank you so much. I tried really hard. Um, you know, as you know, for those of us who work on the front lines, 
but also who work as clinicians. I think there's this real tug where we go into this work because we love it, right? We love being with people through really intense experiences, like the ones that accompany reproductive life. And we like learning about how bodies work in those experiences and being able to help. But I think there's this other side, which is that medicine has its own jobs and its own culture. Like when you are taking care of somebody in Western medicine, your job is to really quantify them, right? You're checking their pulse and their urine output and their blood pressure. And it's also very easy to, at the same time, forget all the other stuff, right? Why are they here or what's it feeling like for them? And if you're not checking their pulse and their blood pressure and their urine output, you're kind of doing a terrible job. But if that's all you're doing, then they're going to have a terrible experience. Yes. Yes. So true. We get so caught up in those facts and those medical pieces that we have to check and we're not looking at the human experience. And so true and insightful that you said, if you're not checking their pulse and their blood pressure and their urine output, then you're doing a terrible job. But we don't, we don't get that credit for actually looking at the bigger picture of their particular situation, experiences, desires, needs. And there's nowhere to document in clinical notes and documents. We looked at the whole picture of, you know, sometimes we'll write desires pregnancy, doesn't desire pregnancy, no complaints, yes complaints, but there, that just doesn't encompass the full picture that really a good clinician needs to take into account. It's one of the things I love about maternal fetal medicine, about high-risk OB, is how often my really complicated conversations have to be almost pastoral care, right? What do you want for your family? What do you want for your life? What can your family manage? Um, these are some of the most complicated questions when I'm talking to somebody who's going to have a very preterm birth, for example, or has to consider getting pregnant when she herself has a really complex medical condition that may become worse because of a pregnancy. And it really almost never is a, you need to do this, you need to do that kind of conversation. It's almost more pastoral, like what what can you achieve here? What would you like? What can you handle? Um, what's your vision? And those are really complicated and long conversations and really long medical notes, I have to add. But I love how they include sort of the medical care and all that pastoral, emotional, um, sort of your vision all together in one. And I, as a nurse, I really like to say I encourage patients to make informed decisions so we can give them the information. You can give a patient the information of these are your risks if you have another pregnancy um, or if you have an extremely premature baby. These are the likely outcomes and what your life will look like. And then just leave that information and walk, step away and just take off all the judgment as long as you're giving them comprehensive information, as long as you're giving them every detail that they need to know. Kind of like those cooking shows where once the dish is made, that's it, hands off. And now it's up to the judges to decide what they like the best, right? Well, that's true. I also, I talk a lot about how care in this situation is often really about constructing a story. I talk a lot about how sort of the understanding of narrative and the way we all tell our stories is actually a really powerful part of, of medical care and of reproductive life. And how, for example, when I'm talking to people about their priorities, what I need to understand, right, is that we're talking about something I'm going to do today or not do today, like a cesarean or um, give steroids or other interventions. But what they're really thinking about 
And what I need to understand is they're thinking about what's the story of their family? What's the story of the decisions they made as a mother? Um, and that I have to live with it just today, but they have to live with it forever. Um, and so when you have that lens, it turns out that certain decisions that maybe don't make sense to me medically start to make a lot of sense from the perspective of a story or of an identity. And then I think it really helps us sometimes be able to talk the same language again when I understand that there is a larger life here that has to make sense for them. Yes. And you've mentioned that in, in your book time and time again, where you're making the decision or you're seeing the the patient for that one moment in time for that day. And they are living with this outcome with the situation with the circumstance for the rest of their lives and they're making that decision to live with for the rest of their lives not just for that one day and it's so incredible to hear of clinicians like you who have so much empathy and compassion for that and it's time consuming and today with the insurance pay rates and really the allotted time that you can realistically see a patient it's so inspiring. I, I can't say that I'm always great at staying on time. And definitely there are patients of mine who will, who will um, bear witness to the fact that I often am running very, very late. Um, I will say that it's also one of the privileges of taking care of some of the sickest patients, right? Is that, you know, I do, I don't, I get built into my schedule the time to have those conversations, the time to manage those really complex medical needs, because none of my patients are just low risk, right? My patients are expected to have um, to take time to require. I'm going to be adjusting insulin and discussing um, the risk of malformation because the hemoglobin A1C was 13 when she when she conceived. And, and that all requires time. And I feel lucky that, to be honest, I'm given that time because of the complexity of the problems that I deal with. And in some ways, that makes my job easier than somebody who's doing a large volume of low-risk care. Wow. Wow. That's so interesting to hear. That's an interesting facet that I didn't think about, but that's true. You don't take, you don't see the average standard OBGYN patient. Can you please explain to us just what your role is in caring for obstetric patients that are high risk because it's not the standard uncomplicated pregnancy? That's very true. So I think a lot of people don't know that we exist. And actually, um, that's true even in medicine. One of the reasons I wrote my book was because I felt like we have this very mysterious role, but I think I have the most important job in the world. I feel like more people should know about You do. That. You do. Um, so <laughs> I I agree. I tell medical students like this all the time. And I'm like, it's a little megalomaniacal, but just bear with me. Um, so within OBGYN, you know, you if you're going to be an OBGYN doctor, you get your medical degree and then you do a four-year residency. And I did that. And I became board certified in OBGYN. Um, and then you can move on to fellowships. And there are fellowships in reproductive endocrinology. Those are providers who do IVF and infertility care. There are fellowships in GYN oncology or cancer care for reproductive organ cancers. Um, and then there's a fellowship for maternal fetal medicine or what we call MFM. Um, and that is a three-year fellowship that covers sort of taking care of women with complex conditions, medical conditions, but also covers becoming the expert in fetal diagnostic ultrasound. So even if you don't see an MFM because you have a high-risk pregnancy, the ultrasound that you get when you're 20 weeks where we look at all the parts of the baby, the anatomy scan, that is almost always overseen by somebody like me who's gotten fellowship training. 
Now, once you graduate from fellowship, there's a variety of ways you can sort of practice. A lot of doctors that are MFMs will be office-based. They'll do a consultation. Um, they will do ultrasounds, but they won't really work on LND anymore. They won't deliver babies. Um, they won't work sort of in the middle of the night. And that's not the kind of MFM I currently am. I still very much work in the middle of the night. I'm on LND all the time. I often say that that's where my sick patients are. So of course that's where I need to be. Um, I'm in LND, I'm in the ICU, um, I'm in the OR all the time. Um, and so just the practice I chose to join and the place I chose to work is extremely hands-on. Um, and so I am still very much an in-the-trenches OBGYN who also has expertise in high-risk OB and fetal diagnostic ultrasound, if that makes sense. Yeah, so I've worked with lots of MFM doctors and some, like you said, some were super hands-on labor and delivery in the operating room. And then others, they mostly see patients in the outpatient office setting. And then they will come to labor and delivery to round on patients and to co-manage the patients with the OBGYN. So even though they have such a variety of knowledge and skill and expertise. At the same time, if you don't keep up your skills and you don't do operating room or you don't attend vaginal births, then it's right. just a skill that is not as well sharpened. Um, so it's incredible that you do the labor and delivery and that you're there in the hospital because I love labor and delivery. That is like my passion. And I do work as a postpartum nurse occasionally too and care for well newborns, but I really, the labor and delivery is just a thrill. It's an adrenaline. I never know what's going to come next. I always say when someone says, oh, you've seen it all. Nope, I've never seen it all. I will <laughs> never see it all. I will continue to see new things. And it's it's amazing. I think what is so, it's first of all, I think that this is true, that like labor and delivery reveals us for the adrenaline junkies we really are, right? Like I don't need to ride roller coasters. I don't need to even consider ever taking drugs. I have plenty of excitement every day without any trouble whatsoever. But I also think it's true. I, I joke that I became an MFM because I didn't want to be bored. And that sometimes I'm, I've overshot. It's sometimes a little too interesting in my clinical life. Um, but we're always learning new things. I mean, I think the last year has been very, very illustrative of that, right? Like there's COVID and now there's COVID in pregnancy. And I have a ton of patients with COVID pneumonia and no data to work on and no prior human experience. And who's gonna figure that out? That's me, that's my group, that's my hospital, um, working really hard to help figure out how we can take care of these really vulnerable patients. You know, we have the expertise in pregnancy, nobody has the expertise in COVID, let's make it up. I don't mean that it's not well thought through or evidence-based, it just means that there's always something new and you can never pass the buck, you can never say, I'll let somebody else figure this out. Yeah. You have to find the solution. Yeah and, yeah. and continuous research, right? Do you actually actively conduct research studies in your work? Yeah, I'm working with research. I, I work at a really large academic medical institution. So I have lots of trainees. Um, and also, I have to say that I really try hard to make research part of a lot of other things I do, meaning if we're doing something to change care, we probably should be recording it and making sure it works, right? We History is full of examples of people changing things that they thought were for the better and that weren't for the better. So almost everything I do, try, I try to make it serve two purposes. Let's try it, but also let's actually research it. Let's 
track it and analyze it and make sure it's working. So for example, um, I have a couple of residents who are really interested in looking at telemedicine right now and whether it increases access for patients or whether it doesn't, right? Because on the one hand, they don't have to schlep across town. On the other hand, if you're not somebody who has unlimited Wi-Fi or a smartphone, you might be out of luck. That's something we really need to check before we make assumptions. Um, I work on a lot of research about access to care, language differences, um, nutrition. I'm really interested in sort of the way the wider world and the medical world sort of bump up against each other. Yeah, you sound like you look a lot into the preventative and um, a very holistic way of looking at things, not just using reactive medicine of treating the actual problem in front of you, but looking at the bigger picture of what can we do to prevent this problem? What can we do to improve access to care, which is a huge thing. And not everyone has an internet, not everyone has a smartphone, and we take it so for granted. It's such a regular part of our life, like in the same way that you have a coffee, you have uh, a smartphone, but it's so true, especially in the underprivileged population that really has so much difficulty in accessing care for a variety of reasons and improving that access, I'm, I'm sure you can agree with me, will change, can change outcomes so, so much. And that's a huge focus now in the current state and in just politics and um, right now. And I, I love it. I love that we're really looking at that more closely. I've worked in hospitals where there was a large population of people who really had so many challenges of accessing care. And again, it's looking at the wider human experience where a patient would come in that had no previous prenatal care and nurses would kind of roll their eyes and say, oh my God, she didn't go to any visits or she just went to one visit in New York. And I don't live in New York, I live in Connecticut. And now she's here and what is she doing? And she's so responsible, but then come to find out she's got a two-year-old at home and a three-year-old at home and her partner is working many long hours at work and she has no care for her child and it's no transportation. You know, I write a whole lot about this. Um, I think it's chapter two of my book about sort of how how difficult it can be to have working compassion and how important it is. And I think that having this like holistic view of, you know, someone's life, the same way that you have a life um, can really make it easier and actually more pleasant to be a physician or a provider or a nurse. Um, you know, that most people really have complicated lives and are, are doing the best that they can. And most of us are limited in some way, whether it's our life circumstances or our ability to handle so much input or even just the way that sometimes poverty just makes it really hard to plan ahead. Planning ahead is an expensive privilege. Um, that being said, in that chapter, I sort of come to the point that that understanding itself is limited, that the more we try to understand and empathize with the patient, sometimes it means that we depend a little bit too much on their narrative as being similar to ours in order to have that compassion. And as you and I both know, at three o'clock in the morning, sometimes that's not enough, right? Sometimes at three o'clock in the morning, it's one last straw and all of your empathy comes sort of shattering off of you and crashes on the floor. Yes. Um, and one of the things I have learned, because I am naturally kind of a warm, fuzzy person, I'm always going to be a warm, fuzzy doctor. Um, I don't think I can not be that person. 
but I've really come to learn from some of my colleagues who are maybe a little bit more distant, maybe even perceived as a little bit colder, but um, they really come to this work with the, with the idea that the patient needs something. It's not my job to judge whether she deserves it. It's not my job to judge whether she's done a good job of attaining it. It's just my job to get it for her. And it's distant, right? It doesn't sound as loving, but I also think it's just unbreakable. And so I'm really coming to this funny position where I do think I need the warm fuzziness of feeling that my patients are absolutely people, but there is room for this cold, distant professionalism that just is unshakable, unbreakable, and will hold you up at three o'clock in the morning when sometimes being loving will not. Yes, so many layers to this, so much depth, and it's so beautiful how you put it into such a concise and eloquent way. And I think it's part of setting boundaries as healthcare providers, where if we don't take that step back and set those boundaries and we overdo it, then we will get frustrated when the patient doesn't follow through. Yeah, I tell one of the stories um, I tell in that chapter is about um, like a 16-year-old pregnant a pregnant patient who she's young and she's not terribly responsible because she's 16. Um, and she also had a congenital heart condition. And I really had bent over backwards to get her appointments and procedures that she needed to be safe. And I even got her a cab voucher. And I remember I had I had done all this work, really, which far exceeded my job description, right? Um, and um, the morning of her big appointment with the cardiologist, um, she just didn't show up. And I called her and I was like, what happened? And she was like, oh, I was tired. I didn't wake up in time, right? Which is a typical 16-year-old thing to say because she's 16. And in that moment, I just felt like I, I couldn't forgive her, like I had worked too hard. But that's that's not professional, right? What's professional is to say, okay, let's try again tomorrow. Yeah, you still need this, right? And so I almost think you're right that um, having those boundaries, having that distance, it's it needs to be in the mix, or your career is going to be short. Yeah, and as a nurse, I find that too. We're kind of at the crossroads between that human experience because a huge part of our job is compassion and giving a patient the emotional care that they need together with the clinical aspect of caring for them. And I do find that for myself, when I set those boundaries, take a step back and say, yes, I'm going to try to care for them in the best way, but I cannot get emotionally involved because they're still going to do what they're going to do. And it's it's maybe even um, some aspect of enabling, right? where we kind of, if we continue to bend over backwards, maybe they'll just come to depend on us to save them. And they will have us, like you said, just for a temporary period of time. But maybe when they slowly learn that it's on on them, when a patient learns that it's on them to make the necessary arrangements and do the necessary things in order to have a good outcome and that no one can fully save them. Well, that's true. But I also feel like we both live in this really interesting intersection where like the medical system is almost impossible to navigate, right? Like unless you know the secret back number for the CT scanner and the fact that 
if you show up to phlebotomy 15 minutes before closing, they'll get you in and out. Like those are the things that you and I know, but we've accumulated that over a decade in the work, right? Um, and that for a patient, it's impossible to know. So I think it's also informed by the fact that we are asking them to enter a very particular world, which is very demanding, right? For my patients who truly have chronic medical conditions, I say, welcome, you're getting a master's degree in care coordination that you did not want. Um, and I wish you didn't need to get, but you're going to learn so much. Um, and a lot of it is about managing a system, right? Not about actually your care or your diabetes or the yes. mechanism of insulin, but I need to know that if I need my prescription on the first, then I need to call for the refill on the 20th. And I need to talk to my doctor about that refill on the 10th. Like that's the kind of thing you learn because you didn't get your insulin last month, right? And all of that is stuff that's basically inside our world. So I, I think it's it's actually informed my parenting a little bit. I don't know if this is true for you too, which is that there's the compassion of knowing that I'm asking for something really hard. There's the empathy of being aware that I'm asking them to step into a world that's not theirs. And at the same time, there's the desire to not just help, but also grant skills. Here's what you need to know. Instead of me calling, I'm going to give you the phone number. Yes. You know? Let's make a sketch. I think that those are things that I don't mean like that my patients are my children or in any way paternalistic like that. I more mean that it is informed my parenting as I see that they are adults and they make choices based on their own extensive, complicated lives that I can't know about. But the more tools I give them, the more tools I make accessible from my world to theirs, often it turns out to really disrupt a lot of the issues we've had. I don't know if you've talked about this, but like I talk a lot about how even things like remember pregnancy tests, pregnancy tests, you used to have to go to your doctor to find out if you were pregnant. Right. And that's a barrier. And now you pee on a stick from a dollar store and that's control over information that people now have at home. That changes everything. Right. It changes. So sometimes when we talk about, oh, she hasn't gotten things. I do think we need to really interrogate how the system has made it very difficult, very expensive. Um, and sometimes so much so that even though she's trying to make the best choices for her health, like it just, she can't make those best choices for her life because it means needing to get a babysitter or losing her job or losing her housing. So I think we do need to look at the like really big picture. Yes. And that's incredible. And like you said, just getting a master's in care management. My husband is actually a case manager. He's a patient navigator for a pharmaceutical company. And I do hear him doing all that stuff that is so difficult and for the average person they're not getting that care navigator and so incredible how well thought out and from what a systematic way you think of this um just really incredible and it's interesting because leading on from that i've heard from my sister-in-law who was getting prenatal care in israel um, the difficulties that she had to navigate where her experience was that she saw a doctor, but then she had to go see a nurse for other things like vitals and weight at a different time. And she had to go to a third place for a lab, you know, taking getting labs done. But then they had certain labs done at certain different times. And she just said she felt like it was a full time job getting prenatal care. So being that you've worked in Israel, which is also so incredible, I would love to hear the contrast that you found in care as a whole um, and with populations that are different that you work there. I would love to hear your experiences on that. Okay. So 
What I can mostly speak to is the inpatient system in Israel. Um, as most people know, Israel does have socialized universal insurance, which is a huge change from the United States system. So even though I know that outpatient care is really fragmented, the fact that everybody has insurance is already for me this amazing sort of safety net. I fully agree. That, I so fully yeah, agree. The fact that I don't have to worry about somebody not getting their insulin because they don't have insurance is already just like a huge weight off my shoulders. Um, that being said, I know the care for outpatient is really fragmented. I just did not have a lot of experience with that. My inpatient experience was really tremendously interesting. Um, as many people know, may know, um, the labor and delivery care on in Israel is much more midwifery focused, where midwives will handle many of the low-risk births. That being said, which sorry to interrupt, but I believe is also from a cost efficient place makes so much sense because midwives, people don't realize this, but midwives can be extremely qualified to do that. So that is true. But I do want to say that the midwifery degree in Israel is a little bit less of a complex degree. Um, when I work with midwives in America, particularly certified nurse midwives who are phenomenal and have taught me a tremendous amount, that's a really advanced degree that's built on top of a really advanced nursing degree. And in Israel, that's not actually the case. Um, oh. The nursing degree is a simpler one. Uh, I don't know the equivalent, but it's definitely not the masters of nursing I've, oh, I've come to expect. And the midwifery course is a nine-month course. It's not a really long one. Oh. Um, what this meant for me is that, and this took me a long time to understand, there was stuff they felt really comfortable with, and there was stuff they did not do. They don't do any repairs. They don't do any medications. They can't write prescriptions. They don't do any outpatient care whatsoever. If a patient needs to be started on Pitocin or have their water broken, that is a doctor job. Um, and so on the one hand, the delivery is much more often done by this midwife. But on the other hand, the doctors are much more sort of integrated with the midwifery care because the midwifery role is a more limited one with a slightly more limited degree. Does that make more sense? Yeah. I mean, it sounds like they function a lot in the role of a labor and delivery nurse, except a little bit of extra. I was always under the assumption that they uh, have the same training that CNMs, certified nurse midwives do. I was also under that impression. So I was really surprised when they called me to, let's say, sew up a first degree tear. But there you go. Um, or they did not feel comfortable starting Pitocin. They needed a doctor order for that. Um, ultimately, what it is, is it's like a deliberately burned delivery nurse who just doesn't call me for delivery, which because in the U.S., that's the one thing you need the attending for. It was so, so strange to me. Yeah. Um, but also, um, I really, you still have to have that situational awareness that if you're the doctor on the labor floor, you need to know what's going on in every single room. Um, there also was a lot less comfort with medical complications. And I don't know if that's because I was at a small hospital or if because these nurses wouldn't have done, let's say, as many rotations on med surge. Um, but severe preeclampsia, which is something nurses that I work with in the United States deal with constantly yeah. and with tremendous competence, it was like a shock, was really at each time was a difficulty. Um, I used to get upset because they would call for a nephrology consult for high <laughs> blood pressures. And I was like, what is this dude doing here? I am the expert in preeclampsia. Um, so just like a really different, a really different sort of division of labor. Um, that took me a long time to understand, right? These are the subtleties. I often say that, you know, a lot of your superpowers as a provider have to do with your knowledge of the system. So you think you're a good doctor, but then you're whisked into a different system and all of a sudden, 
your skill set is just useless. Um, and it takes a long time to build that up to the point that, you know, the fact that you might know what blood pressure medication you want in an emergency, but you don't know what they call it there <laughs> be a little scary. Yeah. Um, so for example, labetalol is Trondate. That's mm. a little tip from me to you. Okay, um, if I ever but, work in Israel. <laughs> yeah, I have many tips for you if you ever work in Israel. I have a little glossary I can share with you. <laughs> um, but the other thing that I think was amazing, and which I think people talk a lot about how medicine is sort of like the most inclusive and maybe the most integrated aspect, I would say in Israeli life, but I think you and I would argue that it's probably true in America too, right? Um, I think it has something to do with the fact that human bodies are just really concrete, and the skill sets required to care for them are really concrete. Like you just need a certain exam certification to be an x-ray tech, and then hopefully you'll be hired. I'm not saying there's not discrimination in medicine. I'm just saying, I think it's a little bit easier to overcome. And so in an Israeli hospital, you'll find as you may not other places, um, you know, Arab Israelis, Palestinian Israelis, um, ultra-Orthodox women and secular Israelis all working together in a way that I just found like charming and delightful and being able to meet people and work with people and even train people that I would never have otherwise met. Yeah, that really transcends all of the politics and the divisiveness. We're just all human. We're just all human. And then there's like the fact that it gets a little bit uncomfortable, right? Like, um, if you have somebody come in who feels uncomfortable with an Arab Israeli taking care of them, that, that feels terrible and it feels discriminatory. Um, but there's also the fact that my um, Palestinian, Palestinian Israeli resident brought her mother to me to get checked out, which is just a huge level of trust, you know? Yeah. And there is an aspect of um, cultural care where, for example, in the States, we know that we have so much discrimination and racism in the healthcare system that creates all of the terrible outcomes. But um, we do know that that cultural care of when a black person has a black provider, right? We do know that there are better outcomes. You know, and I talk a lot about this in, in one of my last chapters about maternal mortality and racial discrepancies in care and how somebody like you or me can really grapple with that because we want to go to work feeling like we're doing something good, right? And then looking at those outcomes, looking at how differential they are is really painful. That being said, um, working in Israel was surprising in this way. You know, it's a, it's a country of many immigrants. I would be working with a Ukrainian scrub tech who would make fun of my Hebrew because I didn't know the words for all the surgical clamps um, and I would also be working with a, you know, my um, Arab Israeli resident who had impeccable, educated, polished Hebrew better than any of ours, who would frequently correct mine. Um, and I told him that was, of course, the most Israeli thing about him was that he was always That's right. So humbling. Um, it was, and it was also wonderful. Um, and I also learned a tremendous amount about the ultra orthodox community that I served about the way they got care, about the way they felt comfortable getting care, um, about the way they integrate their need for rabbinical approval in their lives um, in ways that made me uncomfortable and in ways that I learned to welcome. So it was eye-opening, and I must admit, I still miss them very much. I think they still miss me too. 
Wow. Can you give an example of how you saw the rabbinical aspect and religious aspect intersect so deeply with medicine? Because this is very true for the Orthodox Jewish population in general. We really seek to integrate medicine together with spiritual guidance. And I do believe that each role needs to be taken very seriously. Yeah, this this is where it got a little uncomfortable for me because my understanding of the way that they related to the rabbi was that the rabbi wasn't just a spiritual guide. The rabbi would veto an induction, for example, or you were supposed to call the rabbi for a permission to do a cesarean. Yeah. Um, and th- that's very uncomfortable for me. I have to admit, I've really built my career on sort of working with women who really deserve and have and demonstrate control over their own bodies and their own choices. And so for me, I was actually a little bit worried that I would not be able to work at this hospital. Um, I didn't really want to work somewhere where I couldn't take good care of somebody um, because she felt like she needed to get permission for what I consider a medical procedure subject to my medical authority from a completely unrelated profession. Right. That being said, I have a great story to tell if you'd like to hear it. Yeah, and just to clarify before you tell the story, and we're probably going to close with the story, um, is that there is a huge spectrum of spiritual leaders in the Orthodox Jewish community, and it it doesn't go to say for every single Orthodox Jew that seeks spiritual guidance that um, this is going to be the case for them in many, and I, I do this a lot myself. I have rabbis who consult with me because they know that I intersect kind of between the medical aspect and understanding from a religious standpoint the importance of spiritual guidance. And many times, I mean, I would say majority of the time, they do defer to the medical opinion. Um, But yeah, it's very nuanced. 100%. There's a whole wide spectrum of practice and an integration of rabbinic authority. And um, and I would say that the vast majority of rabbinic authorities have deep respect for the medical profession. Um, This was for me sort of well past where I had grown up, well past where I had understood. And I was very, I was very hesitant. I was very worried about working there Um, in the same way that I would be concerned about working at a Catholic hospital. You know, if I was unable to offer, let's say an IUD to a patient, that would be really upsetting to me if I thought she medically deserved and needed one. Mm -hmm. Um, So my story about my first day is that um, I literally walked into the morning conference wearing street clothes. I don't think I even had access to scrubs yet. And they were like, great, there's a high-risk patient on on the labor floor. Um, It's great that you're a high-risk doctor. Um, And just run, I don't think I I knew where the bathroom was. Like, that's for another day. Um, And they took me to the room of a really young woman, maybe 19 or 20 years old. She'd been married for a year and had gotten pregnant as as she had desired. Um, And she was pregnant with twins and she was 22 or 23 weeks pregnant and her water had broken. And this, as you know, is a heartbreaking situation, right? Because 22 or 23 weeks is is really at the very edge of when babies can survive outside the uterus. Um, It's what I sometimes talk about as the border between a miscarriage and a very, very preterm birth. And um, it looked very much like she was in labor, that we were not gonna get more time. And I had never worked here before. Somebody who broke their water so early the standard of care is to offer them to induce, to augment their labor, to let their uterus be empty before they get infected, before they get sick. The idea being that for many women, they're not going to get a healthy baby out of this, for most women, and that they're really risking their own yeah. health. And I was very scared that 
that she would ask me to ask the rabbi and the rabbi would not let me offer her an induction. Which can be devastating for the mother. Right. And then I would have to watch her get infected and get sick. And not have um, a good outcome for either mother or baby. Right. I mean, I think at this point, basically, the the fetal outcome is, is very, very poor no matter what we do. Um, and so really, I was just trying to um, try to get her through this. And so I walked into that room and I'm so worried. Am I going to be able to work here? What can I do in this situation? I need to feel like I'm taking care of her in the way that she deserves or I won't be able to work here. Yeah. You know, this is this is over before it started. And I said to her in very, very broken Hebrew, I said to her, you know, hello, this is who I am. Before we start, I just want to tell you that whatever we do here today, the one thing we cannot forget, the one thing we must remember is that you are the most important person in this room. And whatever else happens, nothing bad is allowed to happen to you. And I said that to her. I look up. And she smiles at me, this huge smile. And she says to me, That's exactly what the Rebbe said. And I just felt this wave of relief wash over me. Because at least in this, we were united. that nothing bad was going to happen to this woman, if we could help it. Yeah. And that maybe I could work here after all, you know? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's so beautiful. And... That's really what Judaism believes, right? That the health above all. I mean, I'm Jewish too. And so what was part of what was both educational and hard for me is that it would have been much, much easier if this had been like Hinduism, right? Something where I can be like, this is absolutely foreign to me. But it wasn't. This is my religion. This is something very important to me. This is something I also believe I know truths about. To have it be handled in in such a different way is is both really it can really be hurtful. It can feel bad, um, but also so important. I mean, I did have patients many times refuse inductions, refuse cesareans, refuse ultrasounds that I thought were medically necessary because they wanted to ask the rabbi and the rabbi said no. Um, and that that was uncomfortable for me. It's not how even Orthodox Jews in America that I worked with have sort of related to medical care. But I will also say that I came to the point where I really began to understand that for these families and these women, having the Rebbe involved in their decision, having that level of oversight wasn't just a restriction of autonomy, it was also tremendous comfort. And who am I to take that comfort away from them? That's not my job either. So I will say that this brings us back to our compassionate distance, right? I don't understand it and it's not what I would want, I am capable of understanding and seeing what it gives them the peace of mind. And although I won't always agree with it, I can work with it most yes, of the time. Because we can agree that faith, no matter which, no matter which way, no matter what kind of faith someone uh, chooses and is dear to them, faith has such a deep impact in the human experience, especially in reproduction, which is so still secret from us. There are so many things that we still don't yeah. know. And it's also a life cycle event, right? It's a medical event and a life cycle event. And we have to respect that. Anyway, I learned so much from them and I miss them still. And I think that they still miss me. So in the end, we figured it out. 
<laughs> One more question before we go. Did you find that the spiritual leaders in the specific region that you worked in, were they open to speaking to doctors and learning and understanding before they, you know, came to a conclusion? Sometimes yes and sometimes no. Um, one of my favorite vignettes is that the doctor that they often went to that they trusted was actually a um, an Arab-Israeli male doctor, which I just thought was both funny and sad because I said, oh, how do I become the doctor that the Rebbe goes to? Like, why can't I be that doctor? <laughs> and there are ways in which I can never be that doctor because I'm a woman, which doesn't feel good either. Um, but I also sort of could appreciate the acceptance that they did have this ability to accept an outside view as well. There are ways in which this community you know, can never be somewhere that is the only place I work. Um, but I did learn to sort of work with the structures that they felt most comfortable with to get the outcomes most of the time that we could agree on. That's huge. That's huge. And makes me wonder if, you know, an Arab doctor that's not religious, that may not have the overlap of their religious Judaism beliefs help them see it with more objectivity. So Maybe, or maybe they just like that they didn't have to worry about him on sh calling him on Shabbat. I don't know. Um, it's oh. just so interesting, right? But you would never have predicted it. <laughs> no, no. Yeah, there's so many layers. Dr. Javi, thank you so much for taking out this time to appear on this podcast and educate the audience here. And we have so much more to talk about. I hope one day you can find time again in your crazy, busy schedule to be interviewed and talk about even more of your knowledge and the gifts that you have of your expertise and wisdom. I appreciate it so, so much. Thank you again. I loved being here. And if anyone really likes um, listening to stories like this, I have a whole book of them. It's called High Risk Stories of Pregnancy, Birth and the Unexpected. And it's available everywhere, including Amazon, Barnes and Noble and your local bookstore. Um, if you like it, I'd love a review on Amazon or Goodreads. Um, please let me know what you think. I'm reachable at my website, www.javicar.com. Yes, and it will be in the show notes as well for reference for anyone. And it's an incredible book. I got to say, one of the best I've read. It's for clinicians and the general population as well, because you really make it so understandable. So you don't have to, you can just be a lay person who's never even had any babies and you can understand everything. So thank you. Thank you again, Dr. Javi. Thanks so much. I'm hoping we'll talk again soon. Thank you for tuning into the Happy Birthway Podcast. If you're looking to learn even more about pregnancy and birth, check out this episode's show notes for a link to my Instagram account, Yoledet Academy. Before I sign off, I want to impart the value of seeking care from a qualified and trusted provider. Each person's situation is unique and requires individualized medical advice. The information here is not intended to replace that, but rather to educate you on what questions to ask. My mission is to enable you to communicate your needs and confidently collaborate with your healthcare team. I believe that a healthy mom and healthy baby are not enough. We also need a happy mom with an empowering birth experience. 